what's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my co-host, Dave Martin Swagger, one of the biggest Jets fans I know. Want to check in. Jets made a big trade before recording today. Sam Darnold. Darnold? Darno? Not a Jet anymore. Dave, how you feeling about it? I felt inedible for a while now, so... Pleasantly surprised at the return. Second and change, not too bad, given, you know, the lack of actual tangible on the field production in a consistent manner from Sam Darnold. So if you're married to taking a new quarterback, then you should be selling your current one. And that's what they did. So it makes sense to me. Are you ready for the uh, Zach Wilson era? That's all. That's the whole problem with this, though, is there's no guarantee any of these quarterbacks are any good. <laughs> so you could just draft the new Sam Darnold. So I don't know, but Maybe. it is what it is, right? I personally I feel a little bit more comfortable with Justin Fields, but he's going to be a 49er. So it is what it is. I'm hearing Mac Jones to the 49ers. No fucking way. That's just so stupid. <laughs> what a what a surprise that would be if that's how it actually goes down. Yeah, I think Justin Fields would be there too, honestly. Uh, perfect uh, perfect uh, quarterback behind Jimmy G, I feel like, for a year. Well, that's the thing, too. Justin Fields in the Shanahan offense. I'm sure he'll look nice and like a shiny new toy pretty soon. You know, whereas Zach Wilson, it's probably going to be a steady steady rise, you hope, because the Jets roster still has plenty of improvement to do. So, uh, yeah, it, it uh, inedible, though. So it, it, it's all good, honestly. Hey, at least we didn't take Josh Rosen, right? Could have been worse. Could have been worse. Um, and man, we are we're talking sports, but we got a a decent show going on today. I'm saying decent because we're we're kind of hitting a little bit of a lull before things start to pick up. Hopefully, as more people are vaccinated, things start to happen more. Movies coming out, things of that nature. But today, we're going to be talking about some movies that came to streaming or video on demand. We're also going to be talking about a big album. Let's start there. Because your girl Demi Lovato dropping her first album in what since 2017, Dancing yeah. with the Devil, seventh album from Demi. Kind of crazy, seven albums, and she hasn't dropped one in four years. It's a lot of production early on. Yeah, and I in in this press, you can definitely tell she is not the biggest fan of a lot of her earlier work. Obviously, coming out of her uh, Disney Channel come up the way you know contemporaries of hers like selena gomez did as well and the jonas brothers which is i guess that's kind of where she got famous in the first place right camp rock with the jonas brothers i, I think that's where i first knew of her yeah that's probably when i was first aware of her but I, I didn't really watch a lot of that stuff uh disney channel wasn't really my thing for whatever reason but um yeah demi with this new album you know, with the same name as another TV show she's on right now, or I guess a YouTube docu-series right. of the same name. Um, and it, I guess, like, as you listen to this album, I don't know if you've been watching the docu-series. I haven't, but what I've heard from it is pretty raw. Um, Demi obviously had the overdose in July 2018, where she was also sexually assaulted, near-death experience, has been on a long recovery, kind of making her come back at the 2020 grammys um you know it it feels like this is maybe more of an album a 
accompanying the docuseries more than anything in a way. But what 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 is your take on that? Yeah, well, I think everyone's pointing out that this is not the first time she's done any kind of documentary about her her life and her career. And she pointed out this time around that when she did one, I think, five years ago, which was talking about uh, past uh, struggles with sobriety, she actually was high on cocaine at the time of that interview. It's like, and you, I, I have watched the trailer for Dancing with the Devil, the docu-series, and it, they definitely do a good job of uh, showing you the uh, magnitude that it seems like the you know, everything's hanging in the balance for Demi Lovato as, as a person, her life, you know, her well-being. And it sounds like everything since that overdose has more been about her just literally piecing her life back together. And that it was it was a very serious uh, near-death experience. And she still, like, has, like, poor vision and stuff like that. You know, it's pretty harrowing stuff. And you're obviously thankful that uh, she's made it out and also has put together a a full body of work it's a this is a full-length album and it's very uh fitting i guess for that docu-series in that subject matter yeah it's um it, it touches on a lot and it's pretty raw um you know i wouldn't say that there's anything any songs on here that really allow you to not be sitting with some aspect of demi's identity or past um and I think she delivers it still in a way that created some really, really great songs. I don't think this album is like a perfect album in any sense. I think there's definitely some songs that I, you know, on a second listen would probably just skip pretty quick, but I do think there's quite a few songs that stood out to me on here. Um, you know, and, and kind of starting right from the get go. I mean, you have anyone, which was like the Grammy uh, showstopper back in 2020, but then you get Dancing with the Devil, one of the lead singles off this, and obviously the title track, as well as the artist starting over. And I think that song, Dancing with the Devil, is just an absolute like ballad banger. And the music video is pretty raw with it, too, kind of in line with the rest of the album. How do you feel about Dancing with the Devil, the title track? Yeah, so definitely an early standout, <laughs> only track two. But uh, because it it's putting the full... Uh, full appeal of Demi Lovato, like center stage, which is her just absolutely tremendous vocal strength. Mm-hmm. And when you combine that with effective lyrics and like engaging stuff, like obviously her situation that's still ongoing, uh, makes a lot of sense. But yeah, it's a good track. And again, she's like really strong on a ballad song because of just how strong a singer she is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one's a standout. And then the next time things really stand out is the second title track, the, art of, of starting over which i yeah. think is probably the most fun song for me on the album well and that's what was cool about it too is that it it was a concept album as those two songs suggest but it's so quick right like intro is track four and the heaviest stuff is more or less those first three tracks and then it's, there's kind of a switch up which i guess makes sense because over the course of this was it 19 track album uh mm-hmm genre wise she just bounce around a lot right there there's the balladry stuff there's more like upbeat electro pop stuff there is some more 80s and dead stuff because this is a mainstream pop release you know there's stuff all over the place but i was i was actually kind of struck with how she was able to convey that early uh heavy stuff effectively in good songs again anyone dancing with the devil is really good tracks but it also then kind of transitioned i think to more probably more accessible stuff 
that mm-hmm. they want to revisit anyway. Yeah, I agree. And you know uh, that the art of story, uh, storytelling or artist starting over. I'm sorry, <laughs> um, is just like a smooth, like funky pop song, um, kind of followed up, uh, you know, by some tracks down the line that I think stood out to me, such as um, "Lonely People." which uh, I thought was had a really strong chorus um, and more of like a, that modern, like acoustic poppy, you know, the song that you hear on the radio, um, the song with Ariana, I thought stood out, uh, met them last night, which was like this, like woozy drippy type song, kind of nice. Uh, yeah. I, I, th- I feel like it's like in line with a lot of what Ariana was doing on her last album. In a way. Definitely. That sounds like an Ari song. That, that, that shit, that shit slaps, man. That's uh, that's that's some hot shit right there, and I think I really like the drum production and how Demi's vocals fit with that when she's on her own. But there's also so much harmonization between the two of them. Again, Ariana Grande, another really strong vocalist, so it's a nice compare uh, uh, collaboration with Demi. And you know, I, I have to imagine that this was uh, not recorded in person. There was a few moments where I could kind of like hear the skeleton of the mix. I'm like, yeah, I can tell these are combined. But when you're combining two really good sounding tracks together, the way they do and that kind of harmonization, I was like, I like this. So yeah, I think that's that's a clear highlight. That's one of one of my favorite Ari features in quite some time. What other tracks stood out to you? Yeah, so I mean, we've mentioned a few of them, right? Dancing with the Devil and Anyone are like really early standouts. And then I really like Metal Last Night. You mentioned Lonely People. I think Melon Cake's pretty solid. Um I actually thought my girlfriends or my boyfriend, the Saweetie collab, surprised how well those two fit together. Yeah, I agree. Um, Saweetie, another person who's been in the news lately. Um, how'd you feel about that Mad World cover? Which is uh, the second to last track. Well, so it's interesting, right? The the last, what, four tracks on the album uh, seem to be kind of going for some sort of like closure to this uh i don't know introspective type album you know throughout the album she's talking about her sexuality identifying as pansexual um there's rumors that noah cyrus who she's on the track easy who's on the track easy with her that -hmm. they're in a relationship now um you know california sober is getting a lot of buzz because people in the uh, world of sobriety and how to go about that are not really sure if they agree with the way that she's going mm. about her sobriety which is basically doing right. you know taking drugs and alcohol in moderation as she feels like yeah. it's safe smoking weed and drinking basically yeah um so you know you get to like the mad world butterfly good place following california sober and it's kind of like oh i'm in this uh, you know, life is hard. I've been through a lot, but like I'm ending up in this nice place. I just kind of found like the Donnie Darko Mad World cover is like kind of like too on the nose almost, given yeah. everything she's been through. <laughs> I just kind of like, you know, we, we've we heard uh, Lana last week doing another cover and we talked yeah. about like, yeah, you know, it was it was fine. And I found this to be like kind of fine, but like also like too obvious almost. But yeah, de- de- definitely intentional. Definitely intentional. Um, but it, d- it did make my ears perk up. You know, it's a long listen. Great, so the, great song. The, to, to re-grab attention towards the end of a track list, I think counts for something. That's true. Uh, but yeah, I mean, thinking like, I don't have a whole lot of experience with the early Demi records as a whole. I know some of those early hits, of course, I really like Heart Attack. 
And the last album, uh, Tell Me You Love Me, which is another type of ballad song, had that in my top 10, 2017, actually. Mm. Really liked that track a lot. And that's actually one of my favorite examples of a live performance kind of transcending the studio version. There's a really nice uh, video on her YouTube channel. But this, I mean, again, limited experience, but I have to imagine this is her most ambitious album ever because she's tackling a lot of different genres, but also has a really clearly focused uh uh, lyrical subject matter, but also coming out in a, a lot of different ways, right? And you get some good guest spots. So uh, I have to imagine this is her uh, going to please a lot of her fans, which of course probably, I feel like most people don't have the highest bar right now. They just want to see Demi be okay and be successful. You know, She's, she's been on basically uh, vocal rest since 2018. We are really only having a handful of performances, uh, maybe even less than that before you know, COVID hit. So her vocals are in a great place. She's sounding crisp and clear on this. And I think there's, a, you know, about half the tracks that are at least good to, to great. So I don't see how anyone can look at this and see anything less than a major win for Demi. It's good to have her back, honestly. Definitely. Definitely. She sings good. She definitely does. And check out some of the songs that she sings good off her most recent album, Dancing with the Devil, The Art of Starting Over, on our Nostalgia Best of 2021 Spotify playlist, which will be in our show notes. Um, let's move on, though, to a couple of Lionsgate L's, Dave. Let's start with Knives Out. Tell me why this is an L for Lionsgate. Oh, man. So we got a bombshell report, exclusive report from Deadline last week that Netflix has acquired... Uh, Knives Out 2 and 3 in a Ooh. deal with Ryan Johnson and his producing partner Ron Bergman in the 400 plus million range and obviously that's an L for Lionsgate because that means Knives Out 2 and 3 are not Lionsgate movies anymore they're Netflix movies and I was not aware of this arrangement but evidently Knives Out, the original which was a huge success in 2019 grossing over 300 million dollars at the box office despite being completely original film knives out was shopped in a one picture deal and that's how lionsgate ended up distributing it so ryan johnson and ron bergman had just carte blanche to put this movie up to the highest bidder and apparently apple and amazon also were bidding on knives out two and three and it's one of the most uh, lucrative sales to a streamer ever so obviously major dub for Ryan Johnson, Ron Bergman, because that's fucking a lot of cash, you know, good for them. Um, and Lionsgate, you know, Lionsgate's been very up and down. We're talking about one of the downs uh, in a bit, Chaos Walking. But man, you, you, they, they, they must be frustrated that they didn't try and lock in like future options and stuff. But how can you know? I mean, it's a, it was brand new stuff. Who knows if it was going to be successful, but it was a, one of the, I mean, Knives Out 1 made more money in the U.S. than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, Crazy. it's kind of nuts. Yeah. And, you know, you think about when, like, what this was for Ryan Johnson, you know, coming off the Star Wars, The Last Jedi, you know, really divisive movie in the Star Wars fandom. Um, I think this really, like, solidified him as a person who can make popular movies that pretty much everybody loves and people should have loved the last Jedi. Um, actually I would refer people to your TikTok. I think I've watched it like five or six times just cause it's really funny to <laughs> see how they went about just trying to like basically act like it just didn't happen between the first and third movies <laughs> of the last trilogy. But 
Ryan Johnson's really good at making movies, man. And I'm so excited to have more knives out. You know, give, give me Benoit Blanc. Um, yeah. You know, Daniel Craig just being a goofy, silly actor. I love it. It's great. Yeah. And so in that deadline story, there was a piece I was not aware of where basically knives out came into existence because there was room in Daniel Craig's shooting schedule when Danny, Danny Boyle left Bond 25 and in the time before Kerry Fukunawa joined on board to make the film that is no time to die we'll be seeing at the end of this year and in the process daniel craig ended up finding his post bond franchise you know it's way more money in his pocket soon enough but it's quite the turn of events right get that um, bag yeah and i guess the only thing that i'm disappointed in is because knives out was a r- original film brand new thing and a box office success it sucks that that's not going to be in the theater anymore because it's also a great theater movie as kind of a rip roar and mystery caper and it makes plenty of sense that there are sequels to this you have your stability of craig's benoit blanc and then you have a new case new cast of characters brand new cast it's a great way to bring other high profile actors in that don't have long-term commitments like it makes perfect sense right Hmm. to make more of these uh but it will will kind of be a shame that we can't see this in the theater and it's netflix i know some people are saying oh maybe netflix will will lead the money it's netflix they do not put anything out in the theaters besides the token awards release so you're not going to see it there you're going to see it on your tv yeah I was, I was looking it up it did get one nomination for the academy awards but it's not enough to potentially get that you know movie theater release for it yeah um, i mean it, it was contending for best picture everyone pegged it as like the you know 11th or 12th movie like just kind of missed out and now you have the netflix marketing dollars maybe if knives out 2 is amazing this does get some real Oscar love for Ryan Johnson and friends. Who knows? But at least it'll be in everyone's home. So yeah. and in, it's even more be, people will see it in all likelihood. It's going to be taking place overseas. So, you know, it's going to probably look really cool. It's probably going to be in some awesome like Greek uh, like villa or something like that. I can't wait to see that. Uh, do you have anything you like want to see? Any storylines that you can think of? I have one that comes to mind specifically for how I want them to go about the sequels. But I mean, Knives Out 1 was, you know, compared to Agatha Christie, obviously, there's kind of those familiar, I don't want to say tropes, but like structures and ideas for like crafting mystery stories. And I feel like those are kind of on the mind in general because of Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, which is coming out soon, being, you know, relevant again. But yeah, Matt, nothing really comes to mind for me. I'm just excited for some really cool casting because, again, you kind of have the, the world is your oyster with this where you can just cast someone. Any, anyone you want for any kind of character I, I just want like the benoit blanc like whatever case made him the famous detective i mm. want that so whether it's That's like cool. i i hope we could get like a, a prequel sequel kind of thing um right. that that was the only thing that came to mind because i yeah. was like how did he become famous that was one of my biggest questions and i mean this was uh like it was announced that like a sequel was in the works very soon after the first movie found success so you have to imagine this was ryan johnson's primary focus throughout all of the pandemic so i'd imagine this script is in is in good shape mm-hmm. you know i this does not feel like it's being crapped out at all i'm sure this yeah. is going to be pretty darn good uh, i have total faith in them to pull off something good uh how would you feel if in you know one of the sequels we get a lakeith stanfield benoit blanc team up again oh sure sure G- give me, me some Lakeith. He, he he doesn't have a whole lot to do in, in the first <laughs> one, to be honest. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, heck, maybe he's just in two and he left his job at the local yeah. uh, force and teamed up with Benoit Blanc and freelance. Uh, that's that's an, e- that's an easy way to write him in. Perfect. I, I, I get us on, on the uh, the writing team here. We yeah, we, we got, got ideas. Hit us up. Um, we'll, we'll we'll do it at cost. Yeah, exactly. low rates. Um, but anyways, knives out two and three. More than excited for it. Any last thoughts on this before we move into Lionsgate second L? Dave? Hmm. I have to imagine a shoot in June of this year. We're probably not getting it till next year, but happy to wait. Trust me, happy to wait. And we're getting a third one. Cool. There's going to be a lot of movies and probably movies we want to be talking about coming out. So I can wait a little bit for it. But let's talk about a movie I was not really that anticipating that much, uh, which is Chaos Walking. Lionsgate's second L on the podcast, uh, mostly just for not being very good. Right? Just not a good movie? Correct. A movie that got more attention and uh you know ink spilled over its production struggles and just general uh long path to the screen more so than anyone actually talking about watching the movie itself you know it's kind of like almost a legendary story at this point in the past five years of hollywood is a very troubled production and I had interest in it solely on that that merit, you know, kind of rubbernecking. You just can't look away. I just wanted to see exactly what it was and how bad it may be. So, yes, Chaos Walking now available on POVD after being in the theaters for about six weeks. It's it's uh, based off the sci-fi trilogy from Patrick Ness, who was also a, uh, a co-writer on this. And, um, you know, it stars Daisy Ridley. Tom Holland. So right there, you know, and then you got Doug Lyman at the helm. You know, it was uh, conceptualized, what, back in 2011? It was like the right. rights were bought, and then it kind of went into production in 2016. Famous yeah. reshoots in 2018, but because you have uh, two of the stars of, you know, huge movie franchises, uh, you had to reschedule it to like late 2019 new yeah. director it, it's a bit of a mess right and, and that's what's so funny about it too 2008 book optioned a few years later daisy and tom were cast in 2016 and lyman was hired as you know one of several directors to be attached but he was hired then and they went into production august 2017 they first started shooting this movie then but as you said those reshoots were delayed and I didn't know this part, but Tom Holland actually missed the Avengers Endgame premiere because he was busy doing reshoots on Chaos Walking. And then it was supposed to come out last year in the pandemic. They just punted it. And I saw them punt it all the way January 21. And I was like, ah, okay, there's the confirmation that, yes, the movie is still bad. <laughs> and kind of surprisingly, they just let it come out before the movie theaters had really come back. Like, we'll get to Godzilla in a little bit. Godzilla vs. Kong, huge box office success. But Chaos Walking was ultimately just kind of sent out to die mm-hmm. and has made uh, about $20 million at the worldwide box office. <sighs> yeah. You know, it, it's interesting, right? Because we talk, we've been talking about Tom Holland, obviously, a lot recently. We just talked about Cherry a couple weeks back. Check out that review. And I think our question is like, can he do anything outside of Spider-Man that is, is good? <laughs> like, and it's, it's kind of feeling the same for Daisy Ridley a little bit here. Like uh, what's been the best thing she's done outside of star Wars. Yeah. I, I think 
I was had these thoughts as well, and I have to imagine that both da- Daisy is not going to do um, Stranded Space Girl, and Tom's not going to do Young Man. <laughs> I, I don't think they, they have either of them has any interest in these roles moving forward. Yeah. And again, you have to rem- remember they were cast in 2016. This was more right. or less Daisy Ridley's first major piece of casting post The Force Awakens, mm-hmm. and Tom Holland was still quite young at that time, right? Since then, Cherry, Devil All the Time, we we know, and Uncharted coming up. Like we know where Tom Holland's looking. You have to imagine. And I looked at Daisy's uh, work, and she's attached to a number of seemingly like period dramas and more artsy, like Oscar Beatty affairs. She hasn't been attached to any kind of franchise stuff, but you can tell they're definitely both like not interested in this part of their careers anymore. Which was also why I laughed so much when I saw Daisy and Tom actually doing press to promote this film even though it was guaranteed the flop like i thought like god like just leave daisy really alone why do you ask her questions about this shitty movie she made so long ago <laughs> yeah uh, it's it it's tough too because it's not like it's not like it's just them and nobody else in this cast you mm-hmm. know you got mads mickelson you got cynthia revo you got the director that did edge of tomorrow maybe one of the best yeah. sci-fi action films of the last decade lyman's not a scrub at all he's no. a very accomplished man so what what went wrong with this movie like what made it so bad in your opinion right so i i haven't read the knife of never letting go the first chaos walking book but i do like aspects of it like yes this is a young adult movie and we know the young adult genre is completely dead and buried at this point but just like as like a sci-fi fantasy thing i do think there's actually some potential with some of the ideas in this world namely that you can hear and sometimes see people's thoughts. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people cannot prevent you from seeing or hearing those thoughts. And it's like, huh, that's very interesting. Later on in the movie, we find out that the town Tom Holland's from, actually, they all the men all, they killed all the women. Because it's the like, women's huh. thoughts aren't able to be seen, but men's are. Right, and it's like, huh, that's interesting. Not that I'm advocating that, obviously, but like that idea that like man, man can't help but feel threatened by women and 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 are afraid of them hearing their thoughts. I'm like, huh, there, there's at least something there. Yes, a societal thing. But the movie had no interest in going there, of course. And like when Daisy really comes comes uh, to the to the story, you know, she crashes down. It's like it's like, huh, there's a lot of potential here, but it just ultimately comes really like boilerplate young adult adventure stuff, and kind of at every turn. Doug Lyman and, and 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 the script writers and there was many script writers. Uh, every time there was a chance to take it in a more interesting direction, they just steered the film back towards the center. So it's like at the end of the day, nothing is that interesting. This movie cost over a hundred million dollars, you know, reshoots included, but it doesn't even look that cool. Like I was surprised how bland and and, and dull the whole yeah. set design was. So I was wondering where that money went. Maybe was it just effects to, to visualize all the thoughts and stuff? Maybe if there was a better way to express hearing and seeing people's thoughts would have been cool. Because at the end of the day, I think Daisy kind of runs laps around Tom because Tom barely speaks because a lot of right. times it's voice overwork. It's not actually Tom performing his lines because they're in his head and she's hearing them that way. It's like, you know, it just there's just a lot of tough decisions. And I don't know, maybe that stuff you need to figure out before you take a movie like this into production. Like how do we actually 
visualize the most important aspect of the storytelling, you know? Yeah. You know, I, and I just didn't really find a lot of it to like be super interesting. Like you said, there are some aspects of it that I think were really interesting things to explore. Um, I feel like pretty quickly, like it all just kind of becomes like the, you know, on the run story, which is okay. But like, I feel like nothing ever really gets delved into. I think the most affecting moments for me are probably near the end of the movie when, uh, when Manchi dies. And also when he uh, has Daisy read the, his mom's journal to him i think those are probably the Mm -hmm. two moments where i'm like okay this is some like serious acting going on here definitely affecting i mean the the, the dog getting drowned by david uh, a yellow a yellow i can't say his last name thank you um that was just tough like i was like come on man like this this movie already is not fun to watch now i got actually drowning a dog yeah well, and I thought David Oello is probably one of the best parts of the movie because he's just playing this unhinged preacher character. And as a result, the way his thoughts and, and ideas are being manifested is actually really interesting. I was like, yeah. huh, again, a lot of more meat on that bone that they barely delved in at all. Exactly. And it's like Mads Mikkelsen has a nice presence because it's Mads Mikkelsen, but at the end of the day, he's playing a very stereotypical not interesting bad guy like i i the way they set it up i'm like huh is there more under the hood because just the way mads can like look off in the distance you always think there's so much going on and at the end of the day not not this mayor character is not the case yep um so it's, it's just like every moment like that it's like you just see like a way something could be more interesting it's funny, the, the original version of the script was written by charlie kaufman can you imagine how like weird and cringy some of these ideas of hearing people's thoughts could have been under in charlie kaufman's brain i i, oh, I can't man. imagine honestly you know but clearly this Lionsgate and uh you know the executives there they just did not like where it went and they extensively took it from there and of course then they reshot it because i believe the quote from the insider was the movie was a, re- a unreasonable an unreleasable <laughs> the original state so i can't even imagine what it used to look like yeah i mean I'm also like very interested in the whole other like settlement, you know, you get Cynthia Revo as this like badass mayor who's just like running shit and that's not really explored that much. Um, Nick Jonas, big nothing. I mean, <laughs> what the fuck is going on? He's with just him playing right like now? a Fredo. Yeah. It's so weird. Uh, I don't know. There's really nothing right. to this movie. I found very interesting. Yeah, I mean, just booking on the themes, I had a lot of like, ah, uh, there was minority report potential here. I hear what someone thinks, even if they haven't done anything, you know? Yep. Tons of me in the bone. They didn't do it. Didn't go there. Also, uh, there's that scene towards the end where uh, Ray, uh, Ray <laughs> where Daisy <laughs> is, ju- is going through the ship. And the way they shoot it reminded me of Ray going through the Crash Star Destroyer mm-hmm. on Jakku and Force Awakens. And I was like, huh, cool. I saw what you did there. Nice. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's uh, this was a tough one, no question, and uh, no sequels. We know that much. And honestly, Doug, Doug Lyman, he also released Lockdown earlier this year on HBO Max. That's the Anne Hathaway, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor movie. That's like a story based around like COVID s things, and it's an okay movie. But I'm more interested in his next project, which will be his third movie with Tom Cruise. That's the movie that Tom Cruise is actually making in space. Yes. And 
they are both scheduled linemen and, and crew and crews. They're scheduled to go on the SpaceX mission to the International Space Station in January 22. So I'm sure there's more news to be had on how the fuck they're making that movie and even what they're making. It's pretty secretive, apparently. But um, yeah, that's cool. And yeah, yeah Doug Lyman, I, I, I don't blame him too much for this because it just seemed like it was a, you know, it, it was a tough one. It just seems like the sort of thing where nothing came together the way they wanted it to. Yeah. Sometimes the sets are cursed like that, unfortunately. So uh, don't. I mean, don't don't waste the twenty bucks. Wait till it comes on streaming and check it out. I'd say if unless you want to, I, I can't tell you what to do. But you, if you have Netflix, I will implore you to watch Concrete Cowboy, the Ricky Staub film that just came out. Um, because I I think while this is a, I think this is a pretty. Gen- I, I I don't think this is like a new story, right? Like we've seen this sort of story a bunch of times. I think the twist of like the the take on the um, Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club in this movie is a very unique addition to this and kind of just adds like a nice presence to the movie and adds like a interesting distinction. And you get Idris Elba just being this like old guy who pops it in every once in a while in the movie. It's, it's kind of nice. How did you feel about Concrete Cowboy? Yeah, I don't know if the movie itself had too much standout to me. It's a very uh, familiar story in that regard because, you know, there's some sentimental beats. Mm-hmm. Kind of can guess where things are going to go. And I actually would have liked more if they leaned into even further the uh, you know, the history of black cowboys and how that's a story that's very rarely told. And I was aware of that story. I wasn't aware of the presence specifically in North Philadelphia, of course. But... I actually would have liked if they leaned into more of that stuff and almost like the gentrification in this case in areas like North Philly and how this is a specific piece of black culture that is often uh, being ripped away. And that's kind of on the periphery of the story of Concrete Cowboy because we're getting a lot of that fish out of water coming of age stuff for Caleb McLaughlin's character, Cole. So what you get though, I think it's still well made, well told, even if you kind of, you know the beats yeah it's really just a solid film i'd say overall and i mean you mentioned caleb mclaughlin stranger things Mm -hmm. uh fame i thought he was pretty good in it you know i i don't think he's going to be the next like denzel after this performance or the next like on a big hollywood star but i think he did enough where i'm like he he might be like a solid B actor moving forward. I thought he was pretty good. What about you? Yeah, I mean, this is the first time I've really seen him do anything outside of Stranger Things. And I mean, obviously, we know Millie's been busy and Finn Wolfhard's been doing stuff too. And I have, I, I guess he's the next most busy of the, of the kids, you know, like Joe Keery and uh, Natalie Dyer side, Natalie Dyer side, I guess. But like, this you know him tackling more adult subject matter right like it's 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 heavier at times and you know he's actually doing a little spin uh, like with with an accent i don't think that's his normal normal voice but i thought he was solid and like in those moments where he's like really upset or he's trembling or something and i'm like ah oh, it's pretty good you know it's like you can see the seams a little bit i guess it's hard to go up against someone like idris who just has a really strong screen presence without even saying anything but yeah yeah he was pretty good and he definitely someone i just want to see where that career goes i think you're right i think there is some potential for some 
for some solid success, no question. Uh, Jarrell Jerome, I actually wish his presence uh, was even greater because obviously recent Emmy winner for uh, the uh, Central Park Five miniseries, but his character, I think, was like where like the most familiar beats came into play. They like, kind of understand what his role is in the story. I pretty certain I know exactly what's going to happen to him and how that's going to affect Cole because everything's about Cole's story, right? Mm-hmm. But Jerome is still, uh, you know, a talented guy, and I think some of the best scenes for Cole are in his scenes and then no scenes. So, yeah, sorry, yeah the show you're looking for is now they see us um from netflix and i agree i think like even though he's more of just a you know driver of cole's narrative arc um i still found the scenes between them to be really engaging and definitely um i I forgot who played the drug dealer um but he was like really intimidating i thought he was great um in that role um i actually also really thought the scenes between Cole and Smush allowed Caleb McLaughlin to kind of show off what I think made him so great in this, because so often, like you said, when he's up against Idris or even against like um, some of the other people in that community, the adults, he kind of shrinks at times away. And like, I feel like he kind of gets outshone. I was looking for the name of the actor who was the disabled actor or mm. in the wheelchair, uh, differently abled, I should say. Well, I couldn't find it. Well, they said he, he was one of the real Actually, Fletcher Street people, right? Yeah, and um, he was great. Every time he was yeah. on screen, I thought he was fantastic. Um, but against Jarell jo- Jerome, I thought Caleb McLaughlin actually got to like sit with and like chew on what was going on in the scene a little bit more. Like you think about when he's like, Oh, we're going to build something together. You want that. Right. And like the way he kind of just like, you see him like thinking and like looking back and forth, like, right. Like, like I really thought that was like a nice scene. I also thought um, after they get almost, I guess like kidnapped after Smush almost gets kidnapped on the drug deal. um, Right. And they run. I thought that was a really strong scene as well between them. So I I really liked those scenes just because it got to show off a little bit more. Um, Speaking of the like side characters, though, were there any others that really stood out to you? Always happy to see Method Man. Mm-hmm. This guy's playing the cop from the from the neighborhood from the area. So yeah, Good job, Method Man. He actually is pretty busy, right? He was in uh, the Deuce, right? But the last time I saw him, in anything good? But uh, yeah, like I said, I wish the movie was a little more meta, a little more big picture, mm-hmm. uh, just because I think it's a great opportunity to be educational about this kind of stuff but um still 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 pretty good for what it is uh and actually i was surprised i didn't realize this actually played toronto last year that was acquired by netflix i didn't realize this was a festival film 2020 movie yeah um you know just want to shout out one of my favorite scenes was definitely the uh what i don't know what it was called like the fair or whatever they had the cookout. yeah they called it a cookout definitely had like a yeah. block party feel to me uh I just really thought that was a fun scene, seeing like Idris up on a horse, like doing the race. Just, mm-hmm. It was fun. I, I think this is a movie worth checking out. It's like two hours. It's worth it. Yeah, gotta say, uh, the mom just straight up dropping Cole off in the middle of the night and like not making sure that he gets like in the house or anything. I was like, huh. Well, if if your interests are in, if, if the self interest of the kid. Maybe you could take an extra second, make sure it's like all all taken care of. You just kind of dropped him, and 
Yeah. I was like, huh, damn, tough stuff. And it's like you're dropping them off like in the suburbs. You dropped them off in North Philly. So it's like uh, one tough situation to another, Detroit to North Philly. But hey, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a war movie. Tough to be too critical. Hell of a drive, too, right? It's got to be. No, hell of a drive. Yeah. Makes sense why I was at night. Took him forever to get there. Yeah. Um, Well, check it out. Let's talk about. Godzilla versus Kong. And Dave, the first time these two squared off in a movie was 1962. And uh-huh. it looked a lot different, as people can see behind me. And then they'll see behind you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, basically where it came from is like being this, uh, at the time, very, very cool, very exciting thing to like, the Titans movies, like the monster movies are almost played out. So like, where do you take this where it becomes like interesting and like fun again, I guess was like my thoughts. I've never actually really been into these movies myself. Like I've seen some of them varying degrees of, you know, liking them. I really liked this one. Cause I basically, I basically just turned my brain off and I was like, Oh, huge hmm. monsters punching each other in the face and doing yeah. like an MMA fight. Okay, cool. How did you feel about it though? hollow earth hollow brain baby you just gotta go with it uh no i like this one a lot i've seen all the uh legendary monster verse movies of which this is the fourth flick uh, which started in 2014 with gareth edwards godzilla movie the movie he made right before rogue one of course and since then we've had kong skull island in 2017 and godzilla king of monsters in 2019 and I mean, shit, like this movie was already done being filmed when Godzilla King of Monsters came out. These movies have such long tails in post-production because of the extensive effects work with the CGI to create Godzilla and the other monsters and Kong, mm-hmm. right? So uh, as far as like an experience with them, I was actually looking back at the original Godzilla's, the, the Toho you know, run of movies of which there's so many. And it's funny to look back like the eras as they call them and how they'll take off like 10 years of making Godzilla movies and they'll rip off another like five of them or something. We're actually in the midst of one of those eras now because once Godzilla 2014 came out, you had a Shin Godzilla come out from Toho, which was actually pretty well received. And now more recently, even we're getting anime Godzilla, of which a lot of it's on Netflix as far as uh, Western audiences go. So a lot of Godzilla stuff going on right now. But um, had you seen all the MonsterVerse movies or just some of them? I think I'd seen like parts of Kong Skull Island. I'm trying to think what else is in this one. I didn't see Godzilla 2014. Uh-oh. I was actually like well, watching this. I was like, God damn, like Godzilla is just so much stronger. Like how? Yeah. How would they right. ever even fight? Like Yeah. Well, and I actually like because Godzilla versus Kong is very much like a Kong movie, right? This is more or less the second yeah. Kong movie and Godzilla is playing second billing. And of course, Godzilla is in the other ones. But it is kind of interesting to see the, the the tale that these monster Mers movies have gone on. Because Godzilla 2014 is incredibly grounded as far as a movie about a mutant lizard is concerned. Like you don't see a lot of Godzilla. It's it's really character driven. It's actually about the humans, and it makes sense. And I, I really ride for that movie. I think it's tremendous. Um, and then when you get Godzilla showing up, and you get the payoff of Godzilla using the blue fire breath for the very first time, like two hours in it's 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 insane and of course people probably have seen the the, hit, the famous aaron taylor johnson halo jump uh from the end of that movie as well 
it's funny to see like where we've gone to now or this one this one like there's not a lot of like deeper meaning to it the way godzilla 2014 had right like and i think godzilla in general has always been like ascribed to as like an allegory about uh nuclear uh arms races and stuff like that but in this case it's like no this one this is just them fucking shit up and that's why you're here this is kind of like a transformers movie i would say the action is quite coherent though and like you said, turn off your brain. They're going to go to the journey to the center of the earth. And then later on, they're also going to make Pacific Rim 3 because Mecha Godzilla's in this movie too. Surprise. It's like, holy yeah. shit. Yeah, they just they just went for it all. They they unloaded the fucking <laughs> clip on this one, man. And I gotta say, if you like watching this kind of shit, uh it kicks fucking ass. So yeah. it, it was you great. just have to have the right expectations. Yeah, you know, when when I sat down to watch it, I really just went in being like this can only probably get better because I my expectations are pretty are zero. And honestly, when King Kong gets let out of those chains and fucking jumps across three like uh, aircraft carriers on yeah. the water to fight Godzilla, I was like, let's fucking go. Like this, this is awesome. Yeah, gotta say, in that moment, your Godzilla is just fucking terrifying. It's like, how the fuck do they survive this shit, right? Right. And like, in general, how, how the hell did like Godzilla and Kong like stay on those like aircraft carriers? Like it's. Just, yeah, I'll let the physics go a little bit, but still, I thought that was a really effective set piece, no question. Yeah, and it totally sets Godzilla up as being this terrifying presence because he's literally like going through the water faster than any ship or mm-hmm. creature could, shooting just laser beams through people. It's insane. And then they can <laughs> fight underwater? Like, okay, <laughs> whatever. I'm down with it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, imagine if like in, in the first hour in God, Kong gets fucking drowned. Right. <laughs> and then it's just a Godzilla movie. <laughs> I I mean if this was like real life, Godzilla just fucking destroys him. Like uh sure. it's a no fight. But you know, because it's a movie, it's not real life and we know that these creatures don't exist. Uh, right. Well, and that, that's why I always thought it was funny on social media, Team Kong, Team Godzilla. It's like, who the fuck is Team Godzilla? It's like, Team Godzilla's <laughs> like picking the Warriors. It's like, come on, like, you know he's going to win, so pick the underdog. And the movie actually has you root for the underdog because it's much more of a Kong movie. How did you feel about the Hollow Earth? I thought that part was stupid as hell. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. But that's the thing. It's actually in line with how these movies have gone since 2014 when they stopped being grounded. Kong Skull Island, there's a lot of characters, a lot of other monsters and stuff. I think that movie is really fun. Uh, some good bits, like the Tony Kebble, uh, Dear Billy bit, for example. But then, like, they take it to the extreme when Godzilla King of Monsters, which I think is clearly the worst one of these, because that one is so unintelligent and also muddled. Like, the, the, the humans just feel like they're in the way and always, like, not interesting. But on that one, there's this, like, spoilers for Godzilla, King of Monsters. I don't know why anyone cares. But, like, <laughs> that's one where, like, Godzilla is weakened. And, like, they need him to fight the other other monsters. Like, King Ghidorah, you know, the three-headed guy mm-hmm. is the fucking shit up, right? So they need Godzilla to save the day. And Godzilla's actually resting in his lair, which is, like, fucking Atlantis at the bottom of the ocean. Like, this sea, he's just hiding out in, like, the Sea Kingdom, abandoned Sea Kingdom, right? And they drop a nuke to power him up, right? Uh, <laughs> but, like, they set the stage that yes. there are, like, these other civilizations. So I was like, oh, okay. So we got this shit in Hollow Earth where there was a Kong oh, civilization? Sure, fuck it. Give Kong a battle axe powered by a Godzilla <laughs> scale. I'm 100% there. I, I really loved the scene where he like chops that like it was like a Ghidorah type 
flying monster like the head off it and he just eat like eats it or drinks the he brain? drinks like the, the the grog as i call it the, the guts oh that was that was tremendous that that was so like well paid off too i was yeah. like fuck yeah you drink that shit Kyle, you earn this baby <laughs> <laughs> um and then they just like get out of this hollow earth yeah. which actually that that scene was a pretty good action scene like right i, I feel like, again like you, like in this all this build up right? we're literally going into a wormhole to go to the center of the earth and right. guess what the earth is all hollow and then they open the thing and they can just breathe oxygen. Yeah, so good. It's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Who cares? Um, but I, I really liked the ending action scene where they're fighting in, it was Tokyo, I believe, or maybe it was Hong, uh, Hong Kong. Kong, I believe. Hong Kong, okay. Yeah. So they're fighting in Hong Kong and it's just all like LED light, like yeah, pink and purple and like aquas. And I'm like, oh, this is incredible. This you get the call back to like traditional King Kong where he's hanging on like the spire. It looks like he's on the Empire State, of course. Play like and, that one. And in the end, Dave, the humans are the real monsters, which is mm-hmm. what this is all about, really. And yeah. podcasting saves the day. So well, yeah. what more could you want? Sure. Absolutely. I, I want to say give it up to Damien Bashir, who's like the head of uh, Apex, which were like the villainous corporation here. Uh, he definitely was hamming it up. He knew what kind of movie he was in. I, I, I appreciated that. Um, and that actually, I, I didn't Tyree see that Henry. coming. Like, I liked how they paid off. Like in the beginning, Brian Tyree Henry sees like that red thing. You're like, huh? What is this weird tech? Oh, like, he saw Mechagodzilla's eye before it was put in. I was like, huh? Mm-hmm. That was cool, I guess. And actually, my favorite red herring in this because I just don't expect this, something like this to pay off is like they make an offhand comment about like the electrical current of those like hover jet engines. And then they end up using it as a defibrillator to resuscitate King Kong. And I'm like, holy shit, I didn't even know you were trying to pay shit off with that until I saw it happen. Nice. (laughs) Um, You know, this is like the first time we're actually mentioning any of the actors from the film. Yeah. Um, Any any performances that you're like, ah, okay, that's that's fine. Right. So so I think Bashir was doing what he needed to do. Right. Um, Kyle Chandler's like effectively non-existent. He's only there because he's related to. Millie Bobby Brown's character, of course, they're both holdovers from Godzilla King of Monsters. Of course, the mom character passes away. is a big central part of that one. So Kyle Chandler completely unnecessary for this. And, you know, I was thinking, like, I think a big thing that, like, takes you out of this, and I haven't looked, but I feel like they're probably a more polarizing aspect of Godzilla versus Kong, which would be Millie Bobby Brown, uh, Julian Dennison, and Brian Tyree Henry's kind of troop as, like, the, the conspiracy theory podcaster and his loyal fans, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Julian Dennison. He's hilarious. Remember, he was in a Deadpool uh, yep. 2, for example, and Hunt for the Wilder People. And obviously, everyone knows Millie. But in the end, I feel like they're almost there to give exposition yep. to the audience, right? Like, they let you figure out more about Apex. In the grand scheme of things, though, it's kind of a unnecessary Goonies-esque side plot, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's all pretty much just like whatever i guess like rebecca hall maybe stands out as you know okay um at the orphan um gia played by yeah. Haley hoddle i, I right. mean the typical like the child can communicate with Kong. actually i actually liked that they like made him able to communicate in some way by like sign mm-hmm. language or being able to understand it because i yeah. was like how the how the hell are they just gonna like let this monster go like because they they need to be able to trust him somewhat here i mean I yeah crazy stuff. yeah Re- rebecca hall definitely has some really funny lines like uh 
like what was it like we, we need Con- or kong bounce to no one is something she actually says <laughs> and stuff like that obviously harkens back to godzilla 2014 or ken watanabe is like let them fight just straight up you know <laughs> yeah um, i really shout I out really... rebecca hall of course so everyone's loved her since the town but i feel like she's not yeah. the, the in the most high profile stuff usually so no yeah i really like apparently in an interview she described her character as the jane goodall of kong I just am like, wow. You know what? Good, good for her. You know, t- she's taking it seriously, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts on Skarsgård here? Yeah, I mean, just just uh, just to stand in, right? For for anything else, I guess. Um, actually, I didn't I didn't re- 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 realize this until I saw it. But uh, uh, Star- Skarsgård's character is Doctor Nathan Lind of Denham University, and the professor in Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of Earth was named Lindenbrock, and Denim was the uh, head adventure in King Kong. So some uh, Easter eggs there for fans of these kind of stories. But yeah, I mean, they're kind of like the human characters in a lot of these, right? Like, we've actually gone through a lot of high-profile actors in this series. Brian Cranston, of course, made a huge impression in the first one. Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Elizabeth Olsen, Sally Hawkins, Ken Watanabe, Kyle Chandler. There's, there's so many. And yeah, just adds Skarsgård to the mix. He's just one of the guys. So so, so is uh, Isaac Gonzalez as the the daughter of the the, 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 the your bad guy. You know, it's, yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah. Cast some good actors to do not much. <laughs> uh, overall, I was pleasantly surprised with this. Um, really enjoyed the action CGI fuck fest, but it's great. Um, any any last closing thoughts, Dave? Yeah. So. It's revealed that when, uh, just as we're about to understand that Mechagodzilla is in the movie, it's revealed that one of Ghidorah's uh, heads, its skulls, is actually like the pa- powering up Mechagodzilla and actually becoming its consciousness. And that's a nice callback to the after credit scene in Godzilla King of Monsters, where Charles Dance's character acquires one of the dead severed heads of Ghidorah. I actually thought it was hilarious that they were ended up. <laughs> You know, when that fails and Pacific, the Pacific Rim aspects fails and they just can't control it, Mechagods, they basically resurrected Ghidorah into a robot body. I was like, wow, again, did not think you were going to take it to this level, but shout out for trying. Like that, 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 was, that was pretty ambitious. I have to say, I no, I don't think anyone predicted, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I certainly didn't predict uh, that's how Ghidorah's head was going to come back into play. I'll tell you that. Uh, me neither, Dave. So <laughs> we're both surprised, at least. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we wrap up there? Uh, watch. I mean, it's on HBO. If you have HBO but, Max, watch. Well, it. We should note that this is an absolutely gigantic hit at the box office, despite being on HBO Max in the U.S. This is cl- with with ease the biggest uh, movie release of the pandemic, and. It has already outgrossed Wonder Woman 1984, the domestic box office, and it's holding strong in its second weekends in China and elsewhere around the world. So it sounds seems like this is going to be a uh, really good success for Warner and Legendary. And I mean, right now, it only is made about $100 million less than Godzilla King of Monsters made, which of course was released in normal circumstances. So... This is definitely, I think, what Hollywood was looking for. And I got to say, the movie felt like it came out at a good time, right? A lot of people, you know, leading up to Easter weekend. But, like, I think a lot of people were on board just to kind of watch this and have an event film, you know? So HBO Max, Snyder Cut, and Godzilla versus Kong to 
wrap up March and you're getting receipts at the box office too. Very, very, very good times over at Warner. Nature is healing as <laughs> Kong and Godzilla destroy Hong Kong once again. Uh, the the coastal I, I tweeted this, but the the coastal housing markets in this world are just like shot. Yeah, I actually saw that as a critique. Uh, this is supposed to take place, you know, roughly as long, you know, far away from Godzilla twenty fourteen as we are in real life, so like six seven years or something. And yet, the world of the MonsterVerse is completely unchanged. It's like, yeah, there's huge monsters that rise from the deep and fuck shit up. Yet, nope. Our defenses are still basically like normal. There's no precautions made. Yep. We're still going to shoot our fucking missiles at Godzilla like it does a blessed thing. Like, I was like, <laughs> huh, no one's really learned anything in this world, have they? It seems like, like the real world in a lot of sense. So it's a good point. <laughs> All right, Dave, what should people be watching or listening to for next week? New Brockhampton album, their sixth album. Hell yeah. Roadrunner as well as a well-regarded movie coming out on VOD from IFC called Mofi, and also the HBO premiere of The Nevers, which was a fantasy show that at one point was being worked on by Joss Whedon. He has since left the project, but a high-profile show for HBO nonetheless. Tune in. Follow us at NostalgiaPod on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. And, uh, yeah, leave us a five-star rating and review on any platform that you can. We'll see you next week. Kong gang. Yeah.